excellent. Um, well, I think if you need any proof that God's got a sense of humor, this is it right here. Uh, for most of you, this is probably the first time you've seen me up the front without my pet monkey. Um, I realize if you're a visitor here, that sounds pretty weird. Um, this is like, it was great yesterday being at Becky and Pete's wedding. Um, it was such an awesome day. I'm, I'm absolutely knackered from it. So uh, if you find trains of thought just going off into nothing, then just bear with me. Um, <laughs> I'll try, try my best to be uh, clear and concise. Um, yesterday was such a great event. And for me, probably one of the most moving things about it uh, it was really moving to see uh, the affection that Becky and Pete have for each other. Uh, I know me and EJ joke about it, saying, you know, it gives us the book. But it was, it was, actually, it was really moving, and it was, um, it, was, it was really powerful, actually. And you could see that in the speeches and what they were saying to each other. But for me, the most moving thing about yesterday uh, was how exalted Christ was. And it was clear in that wedding that he was absolutely central everything that was going essential to their marriage, central to the unity that we all had as a congregation, and then part of the, the congregation, central to the unity that the two families had. Um, and it was so moving just to see that. And I think if you were there and you didn't know Christ, I think it would be moving as well. And you'd be wondering, what on earth are these guys talking about? So tonight's passage, I want to look at really is just who Jesus is. And I want to look at the sufficiency of who Jesus is as well. Um, it's worth thinking, how would you answer that question yourself? Like if somebody came up to you, a workmate, a colleague, um, uh, you know, a fellow student, and asked you, who, who is Jesus? What would you say to that? It's such a huge question. And what Paul has been expounding in this passage is probably one of the most uh, beautiful and succinct descriptions of Christ I think you find in the whole New Testament. Um, and such a, such a, he paints for us such a, a massive picture of who Jesus is that um, basically what he's going to do tonight, he's just going to drive a metaphorical sledgehammer through that image of Christ up there that we have, you know, or the stained glass images that we build up in our heads and paint this beautiful picture. Paul sums up the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. He says, we proclaim not ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And so I think in this passage here from verse 15 to 23, that's what I want to focus on. Three areas of Christ's lordship. Uh, I want to look at his lordship over creation, first of all. Secondly, his lordship over the church. And thirdly, his lordship of salvation. So three points. Uh, they're not alliterations because I'm new to this. And I couldn't think of anything beginning with C that sums up salvation. So um, three points. Jesus Christ, Lord of creation, Lord of the church, Lord of salvation. Uh, just a little bit of background first so we can get into Paul's head and see, you know, why he's writing this letter. The Colossian church um, is a, was a church planted in Colossae, obviously, uh, by a pastor named Epaphras. In chapter 1, verse 7, uh, you see him mentioned there, Paul um, commends him for his work that he's done there. Epaphras probably became converted uh, through Paul's preaching in Ephesus, went there, heard Paul preaching, became converted, went back to Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, planted this church, and the church is going really well until a new sort of false teaching manages to weasel its way into the church. Um, probably from the whole letter of Colossians, we can infer that it's some kind of uh, Jewish mysticism. So they were saying, you know, you have to do Jewish laws, like observe certain days, observe certain festivals. Um, and they were also doing weird things, sort of pagan practices that were common to the area at the time, which was worshipping angels and very 
they, they had two buzzwords. They were always talking about the mystery, and it was like, ooh. Um, and they, they appeared as well, these false teachers, to be really uh, wise and to know what they were talking about. And it's not like they were saying that the gospel, they weren't saying Jesus is not enough. They weren't saying, you know, don't follow Jesus. They were like, yeah, Jesus is good, but you've got to have this as well. So they were just adding stuff on. And Epaphras sees this, he's worried about it, and he goes to Paul. Paul, at the moment when, of writing this letter, is actually in prison in Rome. He goes to him, acknowledging Paul's uh, apostolic authority, and the outcome is the letter of uh, Colossians that we have before us. Um, so three areas of Christ's lordship, then, I want to look at. Firstly, let's look at Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation. And that's from verse 15 to 17 in the chapter. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had Jehovah's Witnesses pay you a visit. Um, if you're fortunate enough to have them come round knocking, usually at dinner time. Colossians 1.15 is often a verse, actually, that they'll quote. So they'll use it as a quote to say, Jesus isn't God, he was created. So in Colossians 1.15, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn uh, over all creation. For me, I find it quite ironic that they go to a passage that is saturated with Christ's divinity. However, you only have to read the next verse, verse 16, to know that that's not the case, that Jesus Christ was not a created being because it says, for by him all things were created. Firstborn over all creation, what that would have meant to them, it means simply that Jesus Christ is the heir of all creation. Uh, the firstborn was the one who inherited everything of the Father. So God uses the expression elsewhere in Scripture in Psalm 89, verse 27, to talk of King David, where he says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And immediately, the Colossian hearers would have got that. There's not they would not have thought, oh, he's talking about Jesus being created. Immediately, they would have understood that as being he is the one who has inherited all things. Also bear in mind that our Jehovah's Witness friends uh, claim that Jesus was an angel, uh, which Paul later on in this letter, later on in this chapter actually, is going to refute any form of worship of angels. So he is the heir of creation, and he is the agent of creation, verse 16 tells us. Everything was, made, everything was made by Jesus and for Jesus. That's what he's saying. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And that's something to remember next time we're outside on a clear night. Next time you watch that, I don't know if you watch uh, Wonders of the Universe on uh, BBC. I don't know if it's still on uh, with that guy with the annoying voice, uh, Professor Brian Cox. It's fascinating. It's an amazing thing to watch. And you see all these immensely huge galaxies and, and nebulas. Remember the fact, what Paul is saying here, that it's Christ who made them. And that the beauty that we see in them is just an imprint of his majesty. In fact, that is, that's the purpose of their existence. That's why they exist. So when the psalmist, when, I think it's David in Psalm 19, when he says that the heavens declare the glory of God, he's not just using a poetic metaphor. But that is the very purpose of their existence. So people often ask, you know, oh, but the universe is so big and we're so wee. Well, the reason is, the reason the universe is so big is because God is so big. And that's why they exist. Um, for me, one of my personal heroes, uh, well, I've got two personal heroes. One's Dimebag Darrell, the guitarist for the popular heavy metal band Pantera. And the other one is the 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards. I love Jonathan Edwards. Um, and not many people know about Jonathan Edwards is that uh, as well as being a great theologian and a great philosopher, uh, he's considered one of America's greatest philosophers, he's also a great scientist. 
Um, and Jonathan Edwards got this. He really understood that creation existed to proclaim Christ's majesty. And so he loved to study biology, loved to study the natural world. Um, he's got a letter written to a judge. I've forgotten the judge's name. Um, it's called the spider letter because in it, he just it's a letter about spiders. I hate spiders, but uh, he, he was really into them and about how they make webs. And you're reading it thinking, this is, this is mad. Um, but for him, it was just amazing uh, looking at how these webs were created, how there was a natural equilibrium between where the spiders died and uh, how they were, you know, came into this world. Um, and he said to his, his friend in the letter at the end of it, after uh, describing how a web was made, he said that when he goes outside each morning and he sees these glistening webs, in it he sees the wisdom of the creator. And for Edwards, that was what it was all about. Because even from creation, you can learn something of God's majesty and of his wisdom. That's what Paul's saying here, because Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, is the one who made it, and it, is, it screams of his majesty. The huge mountains and valleys down to all the intricate workings of a cell in the human body, the vast oceans down to the smallest blade of grass, all things were created by him. And not only that, verse 17 tells us that they were, they were sustained by him. He didn't just create it, walk away and leave it, but every single atom that is moving is under the sovereign control of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes even further when he says that it's not only things that we see here around about us, not only the creation, but things that are invisible as well. So he talks about thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Um, in actual fact, what that would have been is a Jewish term talking about the ranks of angels. Uh, so all spiritual beings were created by Jesus as well, good and bad. That does not mean that God created evil. Everything God makes is good, and evil comes when they choose to rebel against God and his goodness. But it does mean that all demonic forces and Satan himself are created beings and are under the lordship of Christ. Satan is not the opposite to Jesus. He is not the opposite uh, to, to God. He'd be the opposite maybe to the archangel Michael, but he's not the opposite to Jesus. Jesus is lord over Satan. He was created by Jesus, and he is under the lordship of Jesus. And you see, you get wee glimpses of this in the Gospels. So you see it in Mark 5, where Jesus encounters the demon-possessed man. Um, and there's a legion of demons, apparently. That's what he's called, legion, because there's so many of the demons inside this lad. Um, and they say to him, when they see Jesus, they say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Because they know who he is. I mean, outwardly, that must have looked really weird. So you've got this guy possessed by a thousand demons, and then you've got this humble Galilean peasant approaching him. And these, this guy is terrified standing before this humble Galilean peasant because he know, the demons know who Christ is. They know that he is the son of the most high God. They know that he is the creator and he is the Lord. And they actually beg for mercy from him when they see him. If this is true, if what Paul is saying, even just in this first section, is true, then that means that everyone here was created by Jesus and for him. Not just what we see outside there. It means that we're created by Jesus and we're created for him. That's the very purpose of our existence. And that's the very purpose of even all your course mates, all your workmates. The reason that they exist in this universe is for to be with Jesus. I think that explains perhaps why there's probably so much unrest in us, why there's so much unrest 
and people we know who do not know him because that's what they're made for. If I were to take my watch here and if I were to use it to, um, to hammer in a nail, it wouldn't be very good at hammering the nail because that's not what it's made for. It's made to tell the time. And we are the same. We are not made to, uh, you know, to indulge in the stuff that we do. We are made to be with Jesus. He fashioned all of us for him. That's why Augustine's right when he says that our souls are restless, O God, until they find a rest in thee. And we want people to come to know Christ because that's where they're meant to be. And they will never function properly as human beings. And they will never come to their full potential unless they come to him. And they will be constantly restless. Because Jesus Christ lies at the foundation of the universe's existence and he lies at the foundation of our existence. This also means as well that we're never more than a hair's breadth away from talking about him. Because the skies declare his majesty. All creation is singing of his majesty. Jesus, creation's God's signature to us of his glory. And in him, if Paul, if what Paul is saying here is true, then that means that we are not more than a hair's breadth away from talking about him. I think like this text is just, it's so deep and it, it's, it's a roller coaster ride, basically, of descriptions of who Christ is. And if this is a roller coaster ride, then verse 18 would be the sharp turn in the roller coaster. So there we see the next point. Jesus, Lord of creation. And we see him secondly, Jesus is Lord of the church. So Paul started off with a really broad scope. He is, he is Lord over every single atom in the universe. Even things you cannot see, he is Lord of. And now he's narrowing it down a little bit to looking at his Lordship over the church. This magnificent Lord of the universe is also the Lord of the church, the Lord of his redeemed people. Look at how he describes Christ's role in the church as well in verse 18, the first half. He is the head of the church. Elsewhere in uh, um, I, I cannot think, I think it's Ephesians actually, Paul talks about the church being like a body. Um, so we're all part of this body. We've all got, uh, just like you've got different body parts that all work together as one unified whole. That's what we're like. And for a body to function properly, it needs a head. Well, so I'm told. Um, I've not seen any headless bodies, but I'm told it's pretty important. Um, that means that Christ is the head of this church here, not the minister. And that is, you know, praise God for that. <laughs> um, but that's, that's an amazing thing. When, we've, when, you, when Paul's just painted this majestic picture of who he is, he is the head of this church as well. And the reason he's telling the Colossians this is because they've got guys coming up and saying, you know, there are really eloquent speakers that are proclaiming uh, all these really lofty philosophies and have the appearance of wisdom. And they basically are saying, seeing them as the heads of the church. Paul says, beat this. This is the Lord of creation. He is the head of your church. And he is sufficient. Totally sufficient. You just need him. That should radically redefine how we treat the church as well. Elsewhere in Revelation, Jesus talks of the church being his bride. Um, I don't think Pete would be too happy if I went up to Becky and started just dissing her. If any of you guys went up and started making fun of her, pointing out all our faults constantly, um, we wouldn't be too happy about that. We have to remember that the affection that you see between a married couple is just but a reflection of the affection that Christ has for his church. And we're, we're so quick to criticize because she's not perfect yet. She will be one day and she is a mess and we're so quick to be, oh, the church is rubbish. And as a result, you get people going off trying to start their own thing. 
in actual fact, we have to remember this is Christ's bride, and he is the Lord of this Lord of this church here in St. Peter's and the Lord of his church across the world. And as soon as the church loses its focus on its head, though, it will not function properly. That's what happened to the Colossians. They've lost focus of who the head of their church is. And you see this problem as well in Scotland. So, you know, on one hand, you can have people that are too bound up in rules and traditions uh, that they have just lost sight of who Jesus is and who they're meant to be proclaiming. But on the other hand, you can have people that are trying desperately to reach the culture, they've ended up substituting the truth of who Jesus is in order to accommodate the culture round about him. And doing these things, what they've done is decapitated the source and the substance of their body, and as a result are nothing more than a corpse. And it's sad when you see that. There's a lot of headless churches. And that's why the church, this church, has to contend at all times for the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of his words. We want to make him known because this passage is yelling at us that Jesus Christ is the most attractive and the most compelling piece of evidence for God. It's, I love what I'm doing up in Aberdeen. I went to work with students, and um, I, um, I'm doing sort of apologetics training with some of the lads where we look at some of the objections to Christianity, and we try and deal with them reasonably. But one of the things I always remind them, and one of the things we always try and hammer into our skulls, is that truth that Jesus Christ really is the most compelling evidence for God. I mean, we can answer all their objections reasonably, but if we don't hold up Christ, they will never come to know him. Because Paul's told us at the start of this, chap- this section we've been looking at that he is the image of the invisible God. So if we want to know God, we have to know him. And that is what the church has to be pushing for always. We want to make Christ the focal point of our lives. We want it to be the focal point of this church. This church is built upon making Christ's name great. Christ's name great. And with him at the head, that's really encouraging. I, I, when I'm on a plane, it's good to know that there's a pilot flying the plane who's trained and knows what he's doing. I would be worried if there was a dentist flying the plane and it was his first time. But Christ knows what he's doing with this church. He knows exactly what's happening. And he promises that even though all these hardships, all these afflictions will hit it, which he says they will, that even the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against his bride. If the start of verse 18 was this sharp turn in the roller coaster ride of the description of Christ, then the second half has to be the plunge. So Christ, look, all this stuff that's been described, all these adjectives, he is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the image of God himself, the one who is before all things, the one who holds all things together, he is the head of the church, and now Paul says he is dead. So you've got God, creator, magnificent, majestic, dead, Firstborn from the dead, he says. What is Paul saying here? Well, for those of you who know your Bibles well, you'll know that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was not the first resurrection from the dead that's recorded in Scripture. You have Lazarus. You have the young girl as well. You have, even in Kings, you have the widow's son. So what's Paul saying? Well, the difference between Jesus' resurrection and those other examples, is that they all eventually died again. They were resurrected to show God's power, to show Christ's authority as God, to show his authority over death. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't die. He ascended into heaven. That was it. It was finished. Christ's death is a pattern for all of us because when Christ died, he defeated death. His resurrection from the grave is the sure and complete sign that we too, as his redeemed people, as his church, will also rise again 
and that death will not be the end for us. Death that was once that punishment for sin, Paul describes it, the wages of sin being death, has now been completely and radically redefined and reversed by Christ. For it is the means now by which we are liberated. Death that was once the great weapon of Satan has become the great victory of God. But because, because God himself died for us, it means that we can be saved. And then thirdly and finally, Paul goes on to the, the last point of Christ's lordship. His lordship over of salvation. If you look at verse 20 to 23 in the text, um, you see that he started off quite, he started off broad, Christ's lordship over everything, and he's narrowed it down to his lordship over the church, and then he gets really personal. And he says, you, and you, Colossae, this is what Christ has done for you. He's reconciled you back to God by his blood. He's made peace, it says, through his blood shed on the cross. This mighty creator God that we've been talking about that Paul has just described is also the humble Galilean peasant. He's fully God, fully man. The God who came into human history, lived for 30 years as a carpenter in a rural part of the Middle East that no one had ever heard of. Did three years teaching, was mocked, ridiculed, poor, homeless, falsely accused, spat upon, beaten, scourged beyond all recognition, abandoned by those he loved, tortured, then killed. That's the God that we worship. When you understand that he went through all that to get you so that you could have peace with God, so that God could have you in his family, then that's just mind-blowing. The hymn's right. Uh, I think it's Graham Kendrick hymn that says that the hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. That's an unbelievable contrast trying to understand that and trying to comprehend that, that the God who's created this beautiful creation, the God who has made these uh, amazing things that we see in wonders of the universe that has designed the intricacies of a human cell was the God who had his hands and feet nailed to a cross, was the God who died. It's so radical. That Jonathan Edwards calls this a conjunction of excellencies. And there's a great... Uh, theologian called James Stewart, Scottish theologian, he talks about this well. He calls it the union of contrast that we see in the person of Christ. This is what James Stewart says. He says, he was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of a sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush of, and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet the last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrast which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. 
see, the reality of the situation is we are fallen. We are broken. Paul talks about our standing before God in this passage. We're not neutral. We weren't just passively ignorant to what was going on. Paul says we were alienated from God. We were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. That's what he says in verse 21. There was no middle ground for us. Every single sin that we did, that we thought, um, that we have spoken, everything that we have done is a direct spit in the face of the goodness and of the holiness of God. All our pride, all our idolatry in our hearts created that great chasm between ourselves and the holy God. We weren't looking for him. We weren't seeking after him. But he pursued us. And he came after us. He came to get us, despite the fact that we were like that. We were, we were his enemies. Christ didn't just die for us when we were in a neutral position. We were his enemies. God looked at us in our fallen state and knowing that every sin that we committed was a direct offense to him and said, I want them in my kingdom and I will pay to have them with the life of my son. And Jesus Christ willingly suffered, willingly endured the pain of the cross and he did it to get you. Jesus took the punishment of our sin. Paul, Paul says in Corinthians that he, him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we could have the righteousness of God. That means that on the cross, Jesus Christ, who didn't know lust, became the porn addict so you could have the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, who never spoke an angry word against anyone, became the gossip so that you could have the righteousness of God. That on the cross, Jesus Christ becomes the absolute embodiment of everything that is wrong with me, takes the punishment of it so I could have the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. I give him everything that is wrong with me, everything that's twisted and distorted in my life, and he gives me his righteousness. That is so different and so radical that you can't call Christianity religion. In fact, the Bible doesn't use the word religion, really. It never really talks about it because Paul's adamant. This is not a progression of religious thought. This is not similar to the Greek and pagan thought around at the time, worship of Baal or worship of Zeus. This is something completely different, completely off the charts. This is what we call grace. Jesus Christ, the man who was God, who created the universe, who was the Lord over it, who was the Lord of his church, became nothing so that we could gain everything. And the cross of Christ is the very definition of love. So it's great to see that. It was great to see that at the wedding, to see two people in love. But if you want to understand love, and they had this at the wedding, we love because he first loved us. God is love. The definition of love is the cross of Christ. And if you doubt that Jesus loves you, or that God loves you, all you have to do is look to the cross and see that. I want to close just by making a few applications just from this passage as a whole. Um, because the question of who Jesus is is just so foundational to our existence and the existence of the universe. There's so much application that can be taken from it. But I just want to pick out a few examples just, to, just in closing, just to see um, how important it is that we understand fully who God is. We understand fully Christ's lordship. 
So Paul is just yelling to us in this passage, look to Jesus, look to him, look at his majesty, look at his meekness. That's what he's wanting the Colossians to do. He wants them to realize the absolute sufficiency of Christ alone. Why would you want to add anything to that picture of Christ? You You can't even add anything to that. And what he's done is he's painted such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is that the false teachers with all their wisdom just melt away in comparison. They seem so weak and feeble in comparison to the person of Christ that we see in scriptures. I reckon at this point in the letter, Paul hasn't even gone on to address the, the false teachers in the church. But I reckon at this point, most of them would have been like, what are we doing? This is so daft that these teachers with their appearance of wisdom would have appeared completely foolish in comparison with the person of Christ. It's easy to to look at these false teachers and to to condemn them from the passage, but the reality of the situation is that the false teaching that they were doing is one that we do ourselves. And we do it in such a subtle form that it's hard to see. We want to contribute to our own salvation because we live in a world where we're not used to getting stuff for free. We get, we get distraught when we, when we indulge in sin uh, and we think, you know, how could God love me? We become so introspective that we don't focus on what Christ's lordship means. And when we do that and when we say, how could God love me after I've done this, after I've done that, what are, in essence what we're doing, what may appear to be meekness, is an actual fact demeaning Christ's majesty and demeaning his work on the cross and what he has done because you're saying the, the cross is not sufficient for me to gain forgiveness. Paul talks about this more in his letter to the Galatians and he's telling them, don't dare question your standing before God. If you are in Christ, don't you dare question your standing before God because when you became a Christian, your status changed and you are holy and perfect. He says this, Paul says this here um, in verse, uh, if I can find it, Uh, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's your standing before God. And if you doubt that, then what this passage is telling you, look to Jesus, look to the cross. It's done, it's finished. Your righteousness is not your own. It's sitting at God's right hand right now. That's it, it's there. Look to Jesus. Secondly, if you're indulging in sin, look to Christ. Look, look at what your sin does. Ask yourself if the pleasure that your sin brings is greater than the joy of being in him. Hold it up to this picture that, of Christ that Paul has painted. Hold it up like he's holding up these false teachers. Watch them melt away in comparison with his greatness. Look at who Jesus is. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. Yet he is also the one who loves you so dearly that he was willing to suffer beyond anything to get you. He's given you everything. Thirdly, if worry and anxiety are eating away at you, because I know a lot of you here will, will have exams coming up and uh, there may be some stuff happening to a few of you here that's just causing you to be so anxious and so filled with stress. The passage is telling you, look to Christ. Go to the garden. Go to Gethsemane. See him on his knees, sweating drops of blood for you. See the unending anguish he is suffering there, praying to his father for relief. That's stress. Because he is going to bear the wrath of your sin. He is going to have wave upon wave of God's holy and righteous anger for every wrong thing that you have done poured out upon him. And he stays. Listen to him as he prays. Listen to the reply he gets. Nothing. There is a deafening silence from heaven. 
he did that so that you could be at peace with God. And not just a peace that's temporal now. The peace that Paul talks about in this passage is an eternal peace. These problems don't go away, but they're given a sense of perspective when we gaze upon Christ. If suffering and trials, fourthly, seem to be overwhelming, you look to Christ. He is the creator. He is the Lord over everything. He is Lord over all. Abraham Kuyper was right. There is not one square inch of creation in which Christ does not say mine. And like we saw there, he is the sustainer. He is sovereign. And he is not removed from suffering and death, even though he is this creator God. Pray your tears to him. Pour your burdens on him. He asks you to. He strengthens the weak, and he is in control and he is off operating from a vantage point that we can't see and we can't imagine. But we know that he loves us because like I said before, we look at the cross and we see what he has done for us. Finally, this section just challenges how we view Christ uh, in our theology. When I asked at the start uh, who Jesus is, I wonder how many of you focused purely on his personal lordship for you. I mean, we tend to be very uh, very individualistic in, in this culture anyway, and often that seeps its way into uh, our theology. And Jesus just becomes very, just a, becomes our own personal savior, and we don't acknowledge him as being lord over creation. We have to remember that Jesus is majestic as well as meek, that he is a lion as well as a lamb. But there is that union of contrast within him that cannot be met anywhere else and is impossible in any other being. If we focus too much on one aspect of Christ, then we tend to demean the other. He's fully God, fully man. And a lot of bad theology comes from a poor Christology. So I, I see this with some of the students I work, some of the, the praise songs that they sing and stuff. The One UCCF worker has called it the Jesus is my boyfriend theology, uh, in which they focus purely on one aspect of Christ's character and end up demeaning his majesty. That's what's wrong <laughs> with that stained glass window behind me. I don't have a, I mean, I tend to have problems with images of Christ anyway, not because of what they reveal, but more because of what they conceal. And I can see what they're trying to do there. They're trying to show that Jesus wasn't Swiss, by the way. He wasn't white, and he didn't have purple robes, and I don't, and that thing behind his head. Um, but they're, they're trying to show something of, of his majesty, they're trying to do something that's impossible. Try putting Colossians 15 to 23 in a stained glass window. It's impossible. Because there's a union of contrast. Contrast that, you know, we, couldn't, we can't get these two things together and we try and smush them together uh, and come out with this as a result. That doesn't fill you with awe and joy and wonder. The Christ that we see here, the true Christ of the Bible does. You know, I've got... I. I Doubts do eat away at me, you know, and doubts, you know, I imagine they probably eat away at you too. But whenever I doubt something, whenever I doubt Christianity, whenever I ask myself, is this really true? I look to the person of Christ. He is so attractively compelling, and I tell myself this is so radical yet so reasonable. It makes so much sense, and it's so completely off the wall, but it has to be true. And it's the person of Christ who is the most compelling evidence. Paul closes this section by putting his signature at the end. He said, this is the gospel that's being proclaimed throughout the world, and this is the Christ I proclaim to you. This is the gospel I was telling you, Colossians. Look at how marvelous and majestic. Look at how meek and loving he is. He is my friend. 
He is my brother, and he is my king, and he is the Lord. You know, sometimes, you know, we do sing in church, and sometimes the best response to that is to sing. Um, so I'm going to close there in prayer, and then we're going to sing some songs in response just to how, how marvelous Jesus is that we were singing at the start. Let me close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much that uh, you have sent Jesus, that he is the image of you, that if we want to know you, uh, if we want to know ourselves, that we look to Christ. Uh, Father, thank you that you have um, revealed yourself in him. Thank you that he is the Lord over creation, that he created everything, and that it was created by him and for him, and he sustained everything. Lord, we praise you that Jesus Christ is the head of this church, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to have him as our focal point all times, that our ambition in this church and as individuals would be to make Christ's name great because that is your ambition. Father, we thank you that we have peace now with you, that we can approach you in prayer, that we can speak to you, this majestic creator of the universe, because Jesus' blood has been shed, that he has taken the punishment for our sin. He has bore the wrath for our sin. And we get to enjoy your presence for all eternity because he has taken our sin and given us his righteousness. So we praise you for who Jesus is. And Father, I pray that as we go out from here this week, we would focus on that because that is the most important thing in the universe, the question of who Jesus is. So help us now as we seek to sing your praises. Help us to keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds focused on Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In his name, amen.